Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. And we're all here today to continue our recaps of seasons one to three. And I think today, I think we're both prepared to take the controversial position that we're looking at a very underrated season today. Yeah, I would say so. And if you're one of the people who um, just jumped into the season two episode because it's your favorite, we did have uh, a season one episode before this, and we're going to have a season three episode after this. What we're trying to do is just um, recap all of the Mr. Robot episodes really quickly in broad strokes, so we're prepared for season four coming out in October. And this has been helpful because I think when people talk about season two, I often hear criticisms like, it's slow or it kind of meanders, but I think they hit on a bunch of really important story points in this season. And also, I do think there's some good drama. I think there's some fun stuff in here. I think it's really helpful that um, we started watching the show after the season had come out and we could watch it according to our own schedule. Um, watching this um, with a week in between each episode, I can't imagine that it would go really slowly, kind of like season two of The Walking Dead. And I'm not just going to keep making Walking Dead references this whole session. But um, that was another one of those seasons where if you're watching it broadcast live, it's going to take a long time to get through. But when you can watch it all um, consecutively, you can kind of see that it actually does move at a pretty fast pace. Um, one thing I felt, though, was that the story in this um or rather, like, the, the focus of season two is not so much on the story itself, but on the characters. And they really kind of take a deep dive and flesh out all of their own um, individual characteristics. And I think you raised a good point that if you had to wait a week for a next episode, I don't know how much of a hook there is each episode to pull you back in, right, to make you excited about that next piece. But when you can binge watch it, I think it all flows pretty nicely. We do get a new character introduced right off the top because in one of the, I think, important storylines in this season is the Susan Jacobs story. Yeah, I think so, too. It seems like Susan is kind of, um, uh, she's integral to the story, but not really in a direct way because she doesn't really personally have much of an impact on it. But you can see how um, her character is kind of used by other characters to establish um, their own character and story development. Because I do think she's kind of an archetype, right? She is one of the one percent. She is that. She's the target, but brought down to an individual level instead of just talking about it as a big homogenous mass. Yeah, I guess in a way that she's kind of um, emblematic of exactly what it is that Darlene and um, the whole F Society group are fighting against. We know like um, what their motivations are as far as being um, anti-capitalist, anti-corporate. But this is kind of a way for the story writers to um, wrap all of those different things that the F Society people don't like into one single character who you can use to portray those traits. And she's introduced into the story because E Corp's records have been ransomed, right? Yeah, this was um, a kind of um, prescience, prescience, I don't know how that's pronounced, <laughs> attack. I wasn't sure if I, I said, you. I said prescient. Yeah, okay. Prescient? Um, yes. Yeah, Wait, like... what do I say? We'll sort this out. <laughs> I thought I'll I accept knew too. both pronunciations <laughs> of that word. I was convinced I knew, and I was yeah. like, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> Me too. I could spell it for you. That's as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. So um, ransomware was used um, to attack E-Corp's uh, financial infrastructure and like their banks and their mortgages and um, so on and so forth. 
And um, as time has went on, we've seen that ransomware is one of the parts of cybersecurity that is really um, like it's kind of taken over malware in general. Like it's one of the most successful forms of malware, both in um, its efficacy of deployment and in the return from actually like getting money from your victims. So um, it was something that was only starting to be popular when it was portrayed in the season. And since then, it's only got more popular. If you live in Ontario, there's been a number of stories about municipalities having their information ransomed back to them. So it's interesting that it's effective at a relatively sophisticated level of organization. Uh, Elliot um, has had a change of venue. Yeah, he's um, staying with his mom at the beginning of the season. And none of us really wonder about that at the time, do we? (laughs) The only thing I wonder is why his therapist would not try to talk him out of going back to live with his mom. Like, think about what we know about his mom. Just that she's yeah. mean. <laughs> Maybe it's like exposure therapy or something. <laughs> so, yeah, he's gone to live at home, even though they seem to have no day-to-day relationship whatsoever. I don't question this at all. All of me says, oh, sure, he's living at home with his mom. Yeah, me too. I think that I just have a tendency to take things at face value and not really think about them at all. Because now that I'm talking about it and thinking more about um, like the way they portray, especially in these first few episodes, Elliot's living situation, it all seems so bizarre. But it didn't like feel bizarre when I was actually watching it. It didn't. Like the things you see in retrospect when you watch this season, like the way he and Angela sit when they're talking to each other, like all very prison visitation setup, I, none of it occurs to me. But he is an uncomfortable person in an uncomfortable environment. So the fact that it seems so awkward and uncomfortable, none of these things ever register to me at all. So one of the things that came up in the second episode, and actually it's um a, a two-part premiere. So it's about two hours. The second episode is still part of the first episode. I think there's one of the scenes that has become a favorite for all of the rewatch team, which is the um, Scott Knowles burning the money on Wall Street. I love this scene so much. We actually talked about whether we should give away one of our masks and just write where the mask burned the money inside of it. So look out for that giveaway later this season. I love Phil Collins. I love this song. I love watching Scott Knowles. The actor does a great job watching his face while the money burns. And this is the money remember that Susan Jacobs described as change in their couch cushions, right? Like it means nothing to him, but symbolically, you know, he's under the control of F Society following their directions in public, even though the FBI is saying, don't do that, let us check it. And people are just gathering around filming it and enjoying it. It's like a very good scene. Yeah, I think that to them, it isn't really um, just about the money. And in fact, it's obviously not about the money for F Society either, because they ask for the money to be burned when they probably would be able to use that to further their own objectives if they actually were to take it and spend it. They ask for $5.9 million, which is a reference to the 5-9 attack. And in doing that, they're kind of just um, taunting F- Sorry. And in doing that, they're just kind of taunting E Corp. Because um, the goal of this ransom attack isn't to get the money. It's just to demonstrate in a kind of um, vulgar display of power that F Society are the people who are in control here. I thought I was onto something really clever because season four is going to be launched on 10-6. And I was like, oh, it's just one digit off 5-9. <laughs> I noticed that too, yeah. And then I was like, no, but it's also reversed. And I don't, yeah. I think I, this show makes me read too much into things sometimes where there isn't necessarily something there to be found. There was some more analysis that I had seen about the um, 
fire burning scene. I saw this online and people were suggesting that um, another theme that it kind of portrays to you is that even though there is like this huge amount of money on the ground, um, nobody really tries to intervene. Nobody tries to take any of the money or like extinguish the fire. All they really do is watch it. And um, we see, of course, that Darlene is one of the people watching it. But it tells you that all of the people there um, don't really see the value in money. Like the hack has undermined their entire um, faith in the, the system of currency because they are also kind of uh, being shed of the illusion of capitalism and they don't even see the value in taking free money at this point. That's a really good point because if you think um, there's withdrawal limits, there's very little actual cash in circulation, money is almost worthless at this point because if you had something you could trade, that would be infinitely more useful than a symbol of a thing to be traded. You're right. Like it is about the total devaluing of the system of currency, which of course, you know, we see the kind of fallout of it as things go along, but you're right. No one tries to intervene at all. So that's a, that's a real fan favorite. I think that scene, um, we do have, um, I think the sort of startling death of, uh, Gideon Goddard in this episode. Oh yeah. To me, that kind of just felt like they didn't have a plan for his character this season, or maybe, um, Dom kind of took up the space that they would have been able to offer to him. Um, because kind of like Joanna in season three, it seemed like they kind of just abruptly ended a character's story. Um, I felt like it was very, um, disgraceful. Well, I mean, it, I'm not going to say like it was disgraceful story writing. It was good story writing, but to the character of Gideon, it was just a very bad way to see him go. And I guess that's, um, that's maybe the effect they were looking for, that they would just um, demonstrate that there are senseless acts of cruelty. And um, this person also is kind of like a conspiracy theorist, like a, a five nine truther. And we've seen again that that's another one of those predictions that Mr. Robot got right, and that they're um, uh, reflecting things that are happening in society and that are getting worse and, and more um, obvious over time. Um, I do notice also that the character who kills him, I don't think he ever makes an appearance again or is ever discussed again. I don't think so. And I think this builds on the theme that they start to set up with Shayla's death, that there there is collateral damage to any change in big systems. So that good people, uh, people who are blameless, you know, may also be casualties of change. And so I think they try to establish that. And I think that's important to the Elliot character later when he's sort of reflecting on all the people who have been harmed by just being in contact with him. It would be kind of funny if they introduced Dom and killed Gideon like a revolving door in the Maybe same episode. Maybe they do. Are they just, we only have room for one good character <laughs> at a time. Because I think you're right. I think they do introduce him in this episode. I hate, I hate the lollipop thing that they try to establish with Dom. There's nothing as irritating to me as watching try to show like a grown woman with yeah. an infantilizing piece of candy like i'm glad that kind of goes away because as i rewatched it like that irritated me so much all over again i will say that actually dom was my only ever correct prediction because there's something in these first few episodes where i'm like dom's queer i'm just <laughs> waiting for them to tell us that she's queer yeah. that is my only ever correct prediction which has no bearing on the plot whatsoever <laughs> So they also replaced like the one gay character with a different oh gay character. Oh my god, they did! This is one in, one out. This is quotas for you. 
Um, how did I not ever connect these things? So yeah, Gideon's out, Dom's in. Um, <laughs> back to our uh, regular slate of villains. Uh, Joanna gets sent a music box with a cell phone attached to it, right? Because Tyrell is missing as far as she's concerned. And she believes that's a message from him. Right. Um, it's worth mentioning that Tyrell is missing because of his participation in the 5-9 um, hack. And we'll find out later that he's um, busy with Irving. He's actually been kidnapped, basically. But um, right now, Joanna is assuming that these gifts are some kind of signal from Tyrell. We do get a bit of Romero backstory as we get into season three. So we find that actually Mobley recruited him. And I like this because I never thought of Mobley as really in a leadership kind of role or he's not as committed as Trenton seems maybe, but I like that here, you know, he's the one actively looking for people and he recruits him when he goes to rent the arcade. Romero is actually renting the arcade to Mobley. And now it's a, um, so again, remember this is like a bloodbath this season. So Romero also dies. Yeah. Poor Romero. Yeah. He was, he was like the reality check for all of them. Mm hmm. Because I think he had more years in the field. He kind of knew what was what. Um, and we later learn that it's a stray bullet. But at this point, it seems like it might be Dark Army. It might be a number of targeted things. So everyone, of course, is very paranoid and agitated. Um, and this really only adds to that. Let's see. Um, oh, and Dom goes to visit Romero's mom. Oh, yeah. I like that scene or that sequence. Um, I like it, too. Where, because she offers, I like, I really like the Dom character. I really do. Um, and I like here where she's really willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. So she goes in offering to roll his mom's joints for her. <laughs> and, you know, that makes me think that she probably knows how to roll joints. Like, you wouldn't just be able to pick up that skill that fast. I think <laughs> she knows everything. Like, yeah. she speaks, like, four languages fluently. <laughs> she can just roll a joint. I don't know. She's just... Like, I think she has a lot, there's a lot we don't know about her yet. And I think season four is going to be a big season for that character and mm -hmm. then for Grace Gummer portraying her. So I'm really interested to see how that's all going to go. But this is where she finds the end of the world party poster and that leads her back to the fun society arcade, which has been right in front of everyone the whole time. Mm -hmm. I remember that closing shot where they have Dom coming up on the arcade and you can see this sign and you know that they're kind of um, zeroing in on them. One thing that I remember from another one of my favorite series, which is both a TV show and a manga, is um, Death Note. And in that series, like it kind of shows you that once you have um, enough of a suspicion about somebody, like you're already starting to narrow it in and all it really takes is just one bit of concrete evidence from that point. And just knowing that Dom knows about the arcade and knows that it's connected to the hack, that really, really makes it easier for her to do her job as an investigator and makes you fearful for the F Society folks. So one thing also that I don't notice about this season at all until the big plot twist is how separate all the character storylines are from each other. Like the fact that we never see Darlene and Elliot together. Oh, I never pick up on that. And so Elliot's storyline starts to evolve because he meets Ray when he and his buddy Leon, uh, played by Joey Badass, an excellent character, um, meet Ray at a basketball game. Yeah, yeah. You know, now that I think about it, Ray is probably my least favorite storyline in the entire season for some reason. And I love Leon, just don't like Ray. Although I do find um, the um, 
the aspect of his story that's related to like the online marketplace. Um, actually, maybe I should wait until we're talking about that part. Again. Sorry. The funny <laughs> thing about the Ray character is he's so sinister and so evil, but most people, and I'll forget the name of the actor, will remember him as Doug Judy, uh, the goofy Carthy from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, or from The Office, Daryl, who works in the warehouse. So what I like for this actor is this is a chance for him to really show some range and show that he can play a truly sinister character, and he does a really great job. It's impressive that they're able to be so sinister just through dialogue, really. Because most of the time, the threats are kind of implicit, but still terrifying. I mean, except for when he beats him up. But. Yeah, that's just that's the explicit part of uh, Elliot does use Ray's computer uh, to reach out to Darlene. And that's going to become important later. Episode four is the Halloween flashback. And we did a special episode about Darlene and Elliot's favorite Halloween film, the what is it called? The Unfortunate Massacre of the Bourgeoisie? The Careful Massacre. Thank you. I suppose it was not it meant to be unfortunate. <laughs> and the Careful. It didn't look that careful either, but I'll accept it. I still think that's one of our finest episodes because that was the live recording when we were watching it for the first time. That's right. And so this is flashing back to when Darlene first comes back to town. We don't know where she's been or why she's been away. But she comes back to Elliot and she's lonely and she wants to hang out and watch movies that remind them of, I'd say, better times. But instead, I'll say of their childhood. <laughs> um, Joanna is going broke in this episode. And what's interesting to me about a woman sort of as powerful as Joanna is that all of her material resources are totally connected and flow through Tyrell. I'm not aware that she has any profession or income or inherited anything of her own. So she's starting to struggle a bit. And her bodyguard what's his name kind of brings it to her attention i think that at this point he's called mr x and i haven't told you what his real name is we do get a character name for him at some point so we'll have to look back to that um elliot and mr robot play a chess match for his consciousness yeah there's definitely a lot of symbolism going on there um i think is it krista who suggests it's not to anyone's benefit to win yeah so i believe they they just keep drawing is that a stalemate? They reach a stalemate. Is that mm. the chess word? Yeah. Um, and the the reason for that more precisely is that kind of um, because they do ultimately still share a consciousness, it's not really possible for one of them to beat the other because they do have knowledge of the way that the other person is going to play. Uh, episode five is a little field trip for Team FBI. So this is where they decide to go to China and... I don't think they're necessarily aware. Well, they, they're aware that they're looking into the Dark Army at this point, right? Yeah. And um, one thing that we actually didn't talk about very much in the first season episode was White Rose and their dual identities as um, White Rose themselves and also Minister Zhang. Because that's the person who they go to meet in China. Is this the episode where we learn that Minister Zhang is White Rose's parallel identity? That was in the season one finale, in okay. the, the post credit scene. So this is good because it does start to build that duality, and B.D. Wong is phenomenal in this role. So we start to get a bit of range. There is a lovely moment where he is showing Dom, who's wandered off from the party he's hosting, his wardrobe of what he claims to be his sister's clothing. And so I feel like he's trying to say, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. 
I've got this other part of me that I'm sort of showing to you because they are very personal. Like it's quite an intimate conversation, but then they both pull away from it uh, when the clocks strike. That whole room full of clocks. What do you think is the symbolism of both of these things? I haven't quite figured out the piece about hacking time and what it means for White Rose or what it means for the whole story and that obsession with time. Even I'm jumping ahead, but in season three where... Shortly before Grant dies by suicide, White Rose says to him, our time has come to an end. So it's all about time and time markers and the symbol of that. But I think we need that to be unpacked a little bit more for us. Yeah, and I'm excited to see that happen. Um, Elliot goes, he shouldn't be so curious, maybe. So he goes looking through Ray's stuff and he finds some pretty serious activity. Right. He's running an online um, black market website, what's actually called um, a darknet market. And this is influenced by news about um, Silk Road, which was an actual website that um, has a, a great book written about it called American Kingpin. And there are some allegories between that real life situation and this um, uh, website that Ray is running. Because the idea is that he inherited this website from somebody else. My notes say Elliot finds Silk Road. So I'm on the same same wavelength. Do read American Kingpin. It's really an interesting read about how some well-intentioned libertarians can go too far. (laughs) That's like libertarianism's uh, slogan. (laughs) (laughs) Good intentions gone too far. Um, I think the last significant piece here is Joanna gets a call with just some heavy breathing on that mystery phone that she got in the mail. And so she believes that's contact from Tyrell and that keeps her hope alive. Oh, yeah, the shootout. Let's not forget the shootout. Talk about that one. Well, what's really important about it? um, Well, first off, it was so sad to see her partner be killed because even though they only had like three lines and select points, they seemed like a really nice character. But what's more important is who isn't there, and that's um, Santiago. So I think actually that producer Dave had already thought at this point that Santiago might be working with the Dark Army. And that was something that I hadn't considered at all. I believe it's something I outright rejected. (laughs) Yeah, we should have been nicer to you. I'm sorry. (laughs) So wait, Dave also had a correct prediction, a better one, material to the plot. And we should give credit for that. Some of the fallout of... Elliot uncovering all of this illegal activity is that I think when we leave the episode, we're aware that he's about to face some pretty brutal consequences from Ray's enforcers. Is this the gross rat tail scene? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Gross. I mean, gross to have one, but also gross to sever someone's rat tail and <laughs> part of their scalp. So, you know, no, no good behavior on anyone's part. And um, so one of the, th- Themes. I think it's stronger in the beginning of the series is also about the way he, the human psyche uses disassociation to protect itself from harmful or difficult things. And that's exactly what this next episode is. I think this is my favorite episode of the season because it's totally bizarre. It's the 80s sitcom, you know, cuckoo bananas, like fake full house Alf episode. <laughs> yeah. With Alf, with the yeah. Alf puppet. And if it's not the actual Alf, it's a very convincing <laughs> Alf. Yeah. Alf is back in Mr. Robot form. <laughs> um, and we get little glimpses on Darlene's Game Boy and in the literal rearview mirrors of the car. 
um, that Elliot is being beaten. And so this is the way Mr. Robot is trying to protect their consciousness while he's experiencing that violence. There's some great Tyrell moments <laughs> in this episode. In the um, like the sitcom sequence specifically? Yeah, in this, remember, because Elliot's hearing this noise from the trunk. I, I love that because um, I think I said this when we were recording for that episode at the time, but like... Um, you don't really get to see Tyrell do anything comedic, so it's nice to see that um, Martin Wallstrom is actually capable of that, because he did make it seem really funny. Well, and when we interviewed Martin Wallstrom, I think he loves comedy, and I think he is a genuinely funny guy, and so to see him grab by the ankles, my shoes are Ferragamo! <laughs> Or I'll, I'll always remember, help, I'm a businessman. That's my favorite part. A very yeah. important businessman. Like, it's really like, there's some really wonderful, fun opportunities for the actors in this episode. And they don't get a lot of, like, lighthearted, fun moments. So this is as close as it gets. And they all do a really nice job with it. Did you like Angela as the gas station clerk? Oh, my God. Well, it was, actually, that part seemed depressing to me. <laughs> it, it was all pretty depressing, but it was funny because of how, like, um, shocking and, like, unsubtle it was. What's the opposite of subtle? <laughs> uh, explicit? Yeah, yeah. Maybe? That, that's actually perfect. I didn't think it'd be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> I think in this episode, we do have some of the episode that's located in this sort of present reality and i think this is where darlene is coaching angela through the femme to sell hack yeah this is where they're kind of trying to teach angela how to pull off the hack and they're not really confident if she'll be able to do so or not because she is um kind of new to hacking and this is a project that's going to need both um some technical skill and a lot of social engineering so we kind of Yet Elliot dropped off to the hospital and we learn he's not really in a hospital. He's in a dark basement with a couple of henchmen who have medical equipment better than nothing. Um, and episode seven does, I think, really pick up on Angela's storyline because this is where we realize she knows about F Society. And she also makes a move to settle the Washington Township plant lawsuit that has been really her whole reason for living for giving up her career for sacrificing all kinds of things you know her very reason for waking up in the morning she decides to put aside we do see elliot in a very ron's coffee moment he alerts the fbi to raise activity yeah and it was interesting how ray reacted to that just because you had mentioned in our last episode how um price was talking about imagining the different ways that tyrell would react to being fired um, the way that Ray reacts is kind of just to be consigned to his fate. And he realizes that um, kind of like in that chess match with Mr. Robot um, that Elliot had, he was just outplayed and he's now facing the consequences of that. I think one of the most terrifying moments of this season for me is when he talks about when Ray talks about how his dog dies and how she's helpless at the end. And he and his dog, Maxine, realizes that she's only alive by his good graces and just the line delivery on that, like, it's so ominous. It's so well done. That's a really good moment. Yeah, that was terrifying. So my notes next just say plot twist. <laughs> um, my notes have, like, the blaring prison alarm and the red lights and stuff. That's what I normally think uh, about here. Yeah, I've also got some cells and bars drawn here. So this is the episode, episode seven of the season, that we get to learn why all of these things have happened, why 
Elliot and Ray are in each other's orbit, why Elliot and Leon spend so much time together, why Elliot would ever watch a basketball game. <laughs> yeah, and the reason for that is that he's in prison and he's not staying with his mom. So once again, that's one of the things that I just did not see coming, even though they're kind of um, doing a good job of foreshadowing it through the earlier parts of the season. One thing that kind of separates this twist from the earlier ones about Darlene and Mr. Robot is that those were character-driven twists, where this is one that more is about Elliot's setting and um, the fact that he has been arrested for hacking Michael Hansen. So rather than being character-focused, it's more about the story and location. Also, I think at first we assumed that Elliot must have been arrested for something to do with Five Nine or some of the F Society activity. So finding out that it's about because doesn't he go to jail for stealing Flipper? Yeah, and um, I guess that brings us into the next episode because that's when we see him being. There's arrested. actually just one last point on this. So um, once Elliot exposes Ray, some of his thugs who are white supremacists, they go to. It looks like that they're going to rape and probably kill him. And Leon comes to his rescue and just like, guts them. So <laughs> this is um, Joey Badass. His character has a lot of really good scenes in this season. And so this is one where um, he takes care of these white supremacists. And then I think he says something to Elliot, like when you see White Rose, tell her I did good or something. Yeah, that, that's definitely a really important scene to mention, and I'm sorry for glossing over it. Um, it kind of indicates to you that Leon does have some Dark Army connections, and so far we've known that Leon and Elliot have been really good friends in prison. They have um, a set kind of schedule that they both work on, and um, this is actually because Leon has been assigned to protect him. So now let's get out of the prison. Let's circle back to Susan Jacobs. So some of F Society has been camping out in her smart house. She comes home to her smart house and people have to take matters into their own hands. I kind of wonder like how many gadgets you need for your house to be declared smart. Like, is there some threshold for this? I just assumed as soon as you had a, like a thermostat with an app <laughs> that it was smart or doesn't Alexa make your house smart? Yeah, I guess so. I What's mean, the... not if you're asking me. I think it's all really time. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Darlene kills Susan Jacobs. And one thing I still don't think I'm sure about, I don't know if she means to kill her or if she overreacts in the moment. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Well, we know that Darlene and um, Susan Jacobs actually do have a personal connection. Because like I was saying, that Susan is kind of um, an emblem for the entire concepts that F Society is fighting against. Susan was also the lawyer that um, allowed E Corp to kind of get away with all of the crimes that they have committed against um, the Alderson family. So um, there also is a, a kind of um, emotional aspect to how Darlene is responding because she does have a bit of a vendetta against, against this person. So I think that um, I, I think that she knew what she was doing. But I also do think there's an interesting comparison here because we're kind of having the same discussion that we were having with um, Tyrell and Sharon Knowles, where it's a question of if it was premeditated or if it was just somebody going too far because they were um, being like overly emotional and not thinking things through. And remember, too, that this Washington Township plant scandal, this is based in an actual case that happened in the United States about a plant 
um, that was said to be poisoning the water, I think. And I'm going to forget what state it happened in. Um, company owned by the Koch brothers, uh, one of whom has recently died. <laughs> yeah, it's just the Koch brother now. <laughs> just the Koch brother. But if you want to read more about that, you could, a really good book is one called Dark Money. Uh, it, it kind of looks at that whole empire and it talks about the real life version of that case as well. So Darlene kills her. They incinerate the body. And Darlene, I think, is now at kind of a peak of her paranoia, and rightfully so. So she finds out that Cisco's been snitching on her to the Dark Army. Mm-hmm. So don't she kind of has people who are approaching her from all angles because of the hack and because of this brazen murder? <laughs> She's um, probably going to invite some scrutiny from local law enforcement, including Dom. But now she knows that in addition to the FBI being angry at her, the Dark Army might be as well. We have, is this the long season? Yeah, there's actually 12 episodes to this, right? So in the next episode, Mobley and Trenton go missing. So we don't really know where they are, but we just know that they're absent. And we also learn that stage two, whatever stage two is going to transpire to be, is Elliot's plan. Yeah, because until now, stage two was a word for something that we didn't really know what was um darlene had noticed that cisco was organizing stage two with the dark army and it turns out that once they all went to the work of finding out what stage two was that elliot was the one who was putting it together all along this is a scene uh with white rose and price in the rain and it's one of two really good scenes between those two i love the visuals of that scene to be honest I think the way this episode ends is that Joanna rolls up in her Escalade out front of Elliot's house and says, hello, Ollie, which is the name he had given her when they had spoken on the sidewalk once before. All right. So episode 10, we're going to I think we leave Joanna and Elliot for a little bit. Um, We learn that Ecoin is growing as the global currency and that White Rose's plot to get this plant They want to annex the Congo in order to move the plant and whatever the project that's based there is to Africa. And this is where I think those sort of quasi sci-fi tones start to move into the show because we still don't know what that plant or project is or why moving it is valuable or why there's so much attention given to it. Yeah, yeah. And um, the plants, like being the main motivator for both um, Elliot and Darlene, and being um, White Rose's motivation for a very different reason. It kind of underpins the entire series. And it's interesting how they can um, base the entire story around this one location or this one project and not tell you what it is. So to be honest, um, I don't know if we're ever going to find out. I'm kind of starting to think that it's just like um, a MacGuffin, like a, a plot device that's there to move the story along. And it'll be really hard for them to reveal it as something that will meet our expectations after hyping it up for so long. My next notes say that uh, F Society Bro 1 takes a bad beating, but it's not as bad as what happens to Cisco. So this is, remember, so I think his name is actually Vincent. This is the guy, I think, who'd cut the balls off the brass bull, and they'd sent him to head up the DC ops. He comes to Darlene or Cisco's apartment. I think Cisco's. I don't think Darlene has ever a home or fixed address. And he's like bleeding internally. And they have this moral debate about whether they should take him to a hospital or not. But they decide that that's what they should do. Yeah, I remember that now. Um, What they end up doing is finding Vincent's at Susan Jacobs' house. They end up going back there because they had left the tape behind by accident. So while F Society Bro 1 is waiting at the hospital, Darlene and Cisco decide to go to a nearby diner to get something to eat. 
This is such an intense scene. I remember that it was like um, very difficult to watch when it happens. And the, the cinematography is just incredible. There's also a simultaneous realization from Dom, who shows up at the hospital, that Cisco and Darlene must be nearby. And so she's on foot alone talking to them in the diner. And we never get to know what she said to them inside there when the Dark Army um, assassin shows up and just lays waste to the whole place. Uh-huh. So that's... Um that shooting, it happens with a, a long take that they focus on the diner from way outside and you really don't see anything happening inside. Another thing is that um, there's a pedestrian crossing sign that starts to count down from 10 and the assassins come by like right when it hits zero as if it's like a countdown until what's about to happen. Oh, I'm going to watch for that next time I watch this episode. Uh, the next episode, I think, is my favorite for the season because I've got a thing for the weird, weird episodes. So Darlene wants to confess to planting the femtocell, but before she can do that, she gets picked up by a couple of Dark Army operatives and taken to a mysterious place with a fish tank and um, a version of herself as a little girl. And she starts getting asked some pretty surreal questions. Yeah, th this is really like one of those... Um david lynch inspired scenes right is that the guy i think so because this is very red room for twin peaks viewers um this room and so i think i'm still a seagull not a giraffe <laughs> i can't remember what you said you would have been i don't remember either i do really admire how giraffes are just like so specialized in their evolution though they're just like fuck you tree i'm gonna evolve a neck over you <laughs> Well, and from that vantage point, I mean, they could see everything. They could put together the whole picture. I mean, it's good to be a giraffe. Have you ever seen a giraffe go to sleep and they kind of like curl up their neck around their, home self their whole selves? No. It's as strange as it sounds. <laughs> um, this is where White Rose really gets her hooks into Angela because she says something, you know, I don't want your... I don't know what she doesn't want, but she says, I want your belief. And there's an important line. So there are links... Uh, between Lolita and Darlene and between Angela drawn in this series because one of the questions they ask is where is the key and she says you know the key is in my fist the key is in my pocket and what's important is that line isn't said by Lolita in the book that's said by her captor um, her oppressor and so I wonder if this signals that's finally her shift to being on the side of the dark army and the oppressor when the key is in her fist so it's, I mean, that's a very nerdy way to look at this scene, but I think it, it's important for Angela. Well, there are so many um, references and so much symbolism in the Red Room scene. And I really think that all of it is deliberate. Like, um, if you are familiar with all of these different subjects and different, like, uh, literary references that they're making, you probably would be able to read a lot more into the scene than I'm able to. This is also definitely the episode that some librarian wrote because we also have this really emotional scene between Elliot and Tyrell where Tyrell talks about the Red Wheelbarrow poem and how he hated his father and it was the only English his father knew and so he would say often this poem about the Red Wheelbarrow which of course is the name of the Dark Army barbecue restaurant. So we don't know that yet, but that red wheelbarrow symbolism all comes together, too. So I love this episode. I just think it's weird. Uh, I think it gives us some really interesting character moments. Uh, I, I love this one. <laughs> yeah, it goes to show you that um, it must be a screwed up episode if I have a lucid dreaming scene, and that's not the weirdest part. So we have just one more episode. Um, 
we do get a confrontation between Joanna and Scott Knowles. Yeah, we see that Joanna has found out that the gifts she's been receiving are actually from Scott Knowles. And he's been sending her these sort of as revenge because he thinks that um, there is some relation between what happens with Sharon and Joanna. So he's actually completely right about that. Um, but another thing that's worth mentioning is that she found out uh, the phone's location with Elliot's help. She kind of coerced him into uh, looking up the phone's location with some uh, social engineering tricks. So Scott actually attacks Joanna, uh, who's kind of delighting in the death of Sharon Knowles. And that gives Joanna the leverage that she wants. Because remember, she's been dating the bartender from the E-Corp party. And so this is her ammunition to go to him and say, you want to get back at the guy who did this to me? Tell the police that you saw him coming down the stairs looking sweaty and disheveled at the E-Corp party that night. Which he struggles with at first, but eventually agrees to. This is such a big episode. So Darlene and Dom meet for the first time because Darlene is being interrogated after Cisco's death. Yeah. Um, in some ways, this is kind of like a reverse of that uh, women in refrigerator trope that I had mentioned about Shayla because um, Cisco, his character was more developed than Shayla. But you can see also that having one of them survive and one of them not adds a lot of emotional resonance to Darlene's story because she's kind of talking about Cisco and remembering him. And now she has to go in and deal with this interrogation afterward. The One of the best scenes in this episode is, you know, you hear the moth and the flame and Dom takes Darlene to show them the sort of flowchart for their investigation. And that's when we learn that they think Tyrell is at the center of all of this. So they're not looking for even Elliot as much as they want to get to the guy in the middle, that guy's Tyrell. We do get Tyrell shooting Elliot because Elliot wants to pull the plug on stage two. And we also get to see where Mobley and Trenton finally wind up. So they're living lives as um, dignified fast food employees somewhere in America. And they're on their lunch break uh, when Leon comes up to them and asks for the time. Now, I think I laid out episode 11 is my favorite. What did you two think were favorites? Mine is definitely the FBI fam to sell hack. I really liked um, some of the music and like the long shots they had in that. Um, Dave also pointed out something that I really liked about that, which was how they um, recorded the office segments using um, like a microphone that would capture all of the work that people were doing in the office. So it made it feel a lot more um, immersive. And it's always nice to see um, Angela kind of getting a, a chance to use her own skills. What about you, Dave? I was a big fan of episode seven when we find out that Elliot's been in jail the whole time. Um, I think one of the biggest parts about it is that you you get a sense of the actual reach of the Dark Army and like White Rose. Because like once uh, Leon is just like, you know, tell her I said I did good. You're like, holy shit, like he's been there in jail the whole time. Like, they figured out how to get him in there, put him with Elliot. Like, we knew Dark Army was big, but we didn't know that that was the kind of concentration of power that they had. Um, you also get to watch a bunch of white nationalists die. That's cool. <laughs> well, White Rose is the one who gets the letter written to get Elliot released, isn't she? Uh, I forget who gets them out, but basically it says that, like, uh, the jail can't afford to have criminals with such, like, little time left and, like, little... Like, the crime was so small that they can't afford to keep him in jail. So that's how he... That's how he gets released. Okay, right. That could probably, that's probably his white rose doing it. But you're right. It shows the scope and how organized they are. Mm -hmm. Like what a sophisticated 
machine there. They've taken out Cisco. They've got Leon, uh, essentially like some kind of demented. I don't know what he's just always there when they need him, right? Yeah. He's a guardian angel. Yes, <laughs> thank you. There's uh, there's two other things about that episode too that are they're more minor, but they're pretty cool. Um, it's when Angela puts together that Darlene and, and Elliot started F Society. Because she remembers about the movie, the uh, the careful massacre <gasps> and the a, mask, and she, she remembers. Yeah, so she's like, "Oh, it's you guys." And then it's also when Dom, uh, we see that Dom starts putting her focus towards the main characters, right? So now she's looking at Angela specifically because of the lawsuit, uh, and then she starts looking at like uh, Darlene and a few others. Like this is the episode we learn that Dom knows about them more, because she at the beginning she's just kind of following like the Romero murder and like kind of going down that trail. Uh, and then we realize that she's actually a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Adept? Uh, detective? That sounds right. Yeah. Um, back to Leon, just after watching the first season, what was your impression about that character? And did you think that he would be like ultimately a good or bad individual? I feel like I, I don't know what it is, but there's something um, sort of magnetic about the character. You want to like him, even though, I mean, think about all the things he's carrying out. They're pretty pretty well i don't know he saves elliot like i think we we're on leon's side and i think they want us to be even though he's a dark army operative mm -hmm. yeah i think he's chaotic good yes <laughs> he is chaotic good but, okay we can talk about that in season three <laughs> and so with that that brings us to the end of our season two recap thank you so much for listening to mr rewatch we recorded this episode today in hamilton ontario thank you again for listening bonsoir <laughs> <laughs>